0: Happy New Year again, and welcome to the Good Old Days of Radio Show. This is John Tuffteller, your host. We are doing a 10-part tribute to the great radio series, Escape. This is episode number four. We have with us again, as we have for the previous three, the Australian legendary voiceman, Keith Scott. And Keith, oh, Keith knows way more about Escape than I do. So we're going to let Keith tell you about this one, although this one is the single most famous Escape ever. And probably if you had to stop people and say what was one of the top five vintage radio shows of all time, I think this one would fall somewhere in there. If not the top five, at least the top ten. It's called Three Skeleton Key, uh, we have featured this particular show before, but not this version of it. It was done multiple times. So, welcome to the good old days of radio show once again, Keith, and tell us about this one and this version.
1: I certainly will. Uh, th- this was, uh, as you correctly state, it's without a doubt the most famous of uh, the escape shows. It's just uh, got a reputation uh, over the years because of its its ability to... Um, horrify and some people say uh, feel repulsion or (laughs) or revulsion or disgust just from uh, sound effects.
0: Depends Um, on how much you like little mice or rats. If you like mice and rats, you're not going
1: to be horrified. (laughs) William N. Robeson, the great director of Escape, I think this is the first show that we're doing in this set of Escapes that uh, represents his work. And he he commissioned this story because he'd read it years before. It was... um, a french guy uh, who wrote this story and it's never explained in the radio show why it's called three skeleton key but uh, it's set on a a very large rock where on which a lighthouse has been constructed and and erected and uh, And originally, the rock uh, was like like a kind of a mini devil's island in this story. And uh, they did find uh, the skeletons of of three uh, criminals who starved to death on the rock before the days of the lighthouse. And that's how the title came about. But uh, that was in 1927 in a French language version. It wasn't published in English for 10 years. And then Bill Robeson read it in, uh, in Esquire magazine and an English language version of it. And he remembered it for years and he wanted to do it on radio. And, uh, maybe it was, maybe it was the idea of the multiple hundreds and hundreds of, uh, wild savage rats that needed to be given sound effects that took a while to, uh, <laughs> come to fruition. But anyway, um, he, uh, he commissioned James Poe to do the adaptation of the story and, uh, james poe was one of the uh, really good writers of escape. He, he again like les crutchfield had this ability to create these imaginary well i guess these pictures in your mind and uh, and a sense of creeping dread it's very well done this this first version did not feature vincent price who kind of uh, became most associated with it this was the first time it was done uh, on Escape in 1949 with a, an excellent radio actor that, that Robson had known even back from New York called Elliot Reed. And uh, he plays the lead who narrates the story. This version of it was, uh, was so uh, effective that uh, it was only, I think, yeah, only four months later that public uh, demand created a clamor for it to be done again, to be presented again.
0: Well, we might Um, want to remind those young folks or younger folks that there was no such thing as reruns in radio. Yeah, not in those
1: days. First of all,
0: most of the shows, (laughs) if they were recorded at all, were by contract not allowed to be rebroadcast. And so if you wanted to do a particular script a second time, you had to literally start over and do it a second time and you either used the original cast that you used before if they were available or you substituted people or musicians or whatever you substituted but in order to do it you started fresh and you ended up with a completely fresh production no reruns here
1: yep yeah, no and it was always a new production even though people uh... In the early days of radio research used to say you know because gunsmoke repeated a lot of its stories over the years and they would just write in some reference book like rerun meaning it was the tape of the show it never was uh, it uh, even in the days of tape in the late 50s it was always a new production norman Macdonald insisted on that and uh, like with this escape the second version became the most famous one because um, bill Robson was able to get the you know the famous movie actor vincent price who loved doing radio to the rest of it for the rest of his life he championed radio and uh he really made the uh the show kind of his own because of his unique voice and personality vincent price but really uh this this version with elliot reed uh has a, an incredible uh, feeling of um, a dread and a great atmosphere and a lot of it is due to elliot reed's reading of the lead role i think he's excellent in it and uh it's definitely uh it it was the one this first one made its mark because i think on the repeat version it, not not the i mean the new version with vincent price four months later they announced that the original version which we we're about to hear had won the radio tv life award for the best sound effects in radio and um I met, uh, one of the three sound men who did the, um, effects of all of the, the, um, hor- horrific rats on this, uh, lighthouse. And his name was Cliff Thorsness. You may yes, have I, uh, I, seen him. I knew it. him
0: as well because he came to a right. number of Spurdvac
1: events. He did. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and well, he, he, he was a very modest guy, but, uh, he said that they worked like, uh, like the devil on, on this, um, uh, to get the sound of all these rats. And it was a combination of many recordings and, and live sound effects done at the same time. And they'd given it a lot of thought, but, uh, just, um, ask your, uh, I guess we'll ask the, uh, the great listening audience of the good old days of radio show to sit back and, and relax and prepare to get chilled all over again, because as Bill Robson describes it in a late version on suspense, when he was the host, he said, this is just the story of those rats. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Just a little story about those rats Okay uh, It's called Three Skeleton Key From November 15th, 1949 CBS Radio Network That is the correct date I thought the first version was in 47 But maybe I'm reading the wrong nah, thing 49 here. Okay Okay November 15th, 1949 Lots of little rat noises coming your way On the good old days of radio show Here we go
2: Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from
3: it all? We offer you... ESCAPE! (laughs) ESCAPE! Designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure.
2: Tonight we escape to a lonely lighthouse of the steaming jungle coast of French Guiana, and a nightmare world of terror and violence, as George Tudou's describes it in his hair-raising tale, Three Skeleton Key.
4: Picture this place, a gray tapering cylinder welded by iron rods and concrete to the key itself. A bare, black rock, 150 feet long, maybe 40 wide. That's at low tide. At high tide, just the light, rising 110 feet straight up out of the ocean. And all about it, the churning water. Gray-green, scum dappled warm as soup, and swarming with gigantic bat-like devil fish, great violet schools of Portuguese manowar, and yes, sharks, the big ones, the 15-footers. And as if this wasn't enough, there was a hot, dank, rotten-smelling wind that came at us day and night off the jungle swamps of the mainland. A wind that smelled like death. Set in the base of the light was a watertight bronze door. And in you went, and up. Yes, up and up, and round and round. Past the tanks of oil and the coils of rope, cases of wicks, racks of lanterns, sacks of spuds, and cartons and cans. And up, and up, and up. Round and round. Over the light storeroom was the food storeroom. And over the food storeroom was the bunk room where the three of us slept. And over the bunk room was the living and cooking room. And over the living and cooking room was the light. She was a beauty. Balanced like a ballerina on the glistening steel axle of her rotary mechanism. At night, you'd lie there on the stone deck of the gallery with the light revolving smoothly and quietly over your head, easing her bright white eye 360 degrees around the horizon. You'd lie there watching to see that the feeders kept working, that everything ran right, and it wouldn't be bad. The other two fellows snoring in their sacks two levels down, You'd smoke your pipe to kill the stink of the wind. And it wouldn't be bad. About those other two, Louis and Auguste, what a pair. Louis, he was head man, was a big fellow from the Basque country. Black beard, little hard black eyes, and a pair of arms that... I tell you, those arms were as big around as my legs. Yes, head man he was. And what word he let go was law. Silent fellow, and although I spent my first two weeks trying to strike up a real conversation, the most I could
2: ever get out of him was... Uh, I took up this profession because I don't like people. They talk too much. It's quiet work, light tending. Let's keep it that way. You're getting to be as bad as August. I thought maybe for once they'd send me somebody... That who was Louis. And when he accused me of becoming like August, I quieted down,
4: because August was the talkingest man I've ever met. The talkingest and the ugliest. He was hunchbacked, stood four feet high, had red hair and big
5: blue eyes... It seems he'd been an actor in Paris. In over 200 different productions, dear boy, at the Grand Guignol. Oh, but it was monstrous, horrible. The way we used to scare the audience, I, I, I was hated. Yes, yes, they used to throw things and hiss and bare their teeth at me. Finally, it got too bad. I couldn't stand it any longer. I gave up the theater. My nerves, you understand, yes, gave it up completely. I really did. I couldn't stand it.
4: It all started one morning at 2.30. I was on watch, lying on the cool stone deck, pulling on my pipe, staring out at the blackness, the phosphorescent combers and the big yellow stars, when, out of the corner of my eye, I noticed something show up for a second, something the light had touched, far off. I waited for her to come around again, and when she did... There it was, a three-master, a big one, about a half mile off, and coming down out of the north-northwest, coming straight for us. You must understand, our light was where it was for a very good reason, dangerous submerged reefs surrounded us and ships kept clear, but this one, this sailing vessel was coming straight on. I went over to the gallery door and yelled down. had the glasses out now. I couldn't read her name, but I could see her quite plainly. All sails set, the foam creaming away under her bow. Her beautiful lines. A Dutch ship, I guessed her. But why didn't she turn? Every time it passed, our light hit her with the glare of day. Ship? Where? North, northwest. The light will touch her in a moment.
2: Oh, uh, well, can't she see us? Look at her. She just keeps coming on. The square heads.
5: What is it? What is it? Watch. North, Northwest. Ah. I know. I know what it is. What? The Dutchman. The Flying Dutchman. We did a play about her. What? Oh, what a performance. You ghastly galleon. Hagridden, curse driven. Mustard. Oh, on... shut up!
2: Will you? Yeah, uh, she's laughing. Yes. It's a sloppy way to come about. She's derelict, that's it. Derelict? Abandoned crew left her for some reason or another, but instead of sinking, she's gone on, running before every wind. She'll not
5: run long, not with these reefs to break her up. A
2: beautiful ship. Now, why would men leave a beautiful ship like that?
4: She didn't ram us, although we all expected it, but as we waited for the crash, she luffed again, caught some odd gust and went about. We watched her the rest of those black hours, healing and rocking, pushed and pulled by every stray wind, every freak current. Watched her until the dawn came, till the sea turned from black to pearly gray. And on she came again, heading for us. We all had our glasses trained on her now.
2: August, you can kill the light. Right, Chief. She doesn't look so good by daylight. Think
4: she'll ground this time? I say, do you think she'll ground this time?
2: This is impossible. Absolutely impossible. What? Here, take my glasses. They're better than yours. All right. What is it, your...
4: I had to focus. And then... my breath froze in my throat. The decks were swarming with a dark brown carpet that looked like a gigantic fungus but undulating. And on the masts and yards, the guys and all, were hundreds, no thousands, no mil... I don't know. An inestimable number of tremendous rats. See them? Yes,
5: I see them.
2: Now we know why she's derelict. Yes, now we know.
5: What are you two doing? Here, give me a look.
2: Yes, give him the glasses. Take a good look, chatterbox. Give you something to talk about. She's still heading for us. Yes.
4: If she's going to turn, she'd better turn soon. Suppose she doesn't. You mean suppose she piles up on the quay?
2: It's low tide.
4: Yes. Yes, it is.
2: Well, where's all the conversation, August? Huh? Here, you want the glasses again? You want another look? No! No! She's still coming on. Go away! Go away! Turn, will you? Turn, I say! I pray you, turn. Cracked up.
5: The rats! Look! On the water! Like a carpet. But
2: they're swimming. Sure, they're swimming. Those are ship threats. But they're swimming for the rocks. The door below,
5: it's open. Well, well, come on.
2: And down
4: we went, racing down the stone stairs, taking them three and four at a time. Scared?
2: You bet we were scared. August, you get the windows. Maybe they can climb, we don't know. Right, Chief,
4: but hurry, hurry.
2: You see them? No.
4: Oh, yes, I do. Up at the other end of the rock.
2: Look at them. Millions. They smell us. Here they come. close the door. I can't. It's stuck. Here, let me. Move you. Uh, Made it. Holy, that was close. One got in. Look there. Well, get him. Watch it. He's. Kick him. What a brute.
4: He was as big as a tomcat. Bigger and his eyes were wild and red, his teeth long and sharp and yellow. He went for us, starving, ravenous. And we fought him, fought that one rat all over the room. It was, oh, believe me, I don't exaggerate. It was like fighting a panther. Uh,
2: I got it. We'd better get aloft.
4: As we ran up the winding staircase, we passed the tiny windows of the various levels, and at every one, was a thick, wriggling, screaming curtain of brown fur. I was ahead of Louis, and I dreaded each successive level.
2: Suppose they had found a way in. Look at them.
5: Oh, will you look at them?
2: It's a nightmare.
5: Will you look at them?
2: The air of the gallery was thick and
4: fetid with the stink of them. The light was dim, brown, filtered through the crawling mass that swarmed over the glass, all about us. We couldn't see the sky, nothing nothing but them. Their red eyes, their claws, their wriggling hairy snouts, and their teeth. The rats. They screamed and howled and threw themselves against the glass. They were starving. And we three, we stood very quietly. Oh, very, very quietly in the center of the glass room under our beautiful light.
2: And we waited...
5: What can we do? What can we do, Chief?
2: Take it easy. Take it easy. I, I, I
5: can't. I just can't.
4: Won't do any good to. It won't do any good to stand here and shake.
2: That's right.
5: Go away! Go away, do you hear me? Go away this instant!
2: They won't go away. Not until. Finish it, Chief! Not until. What? Not until they've been fed.
4: You can take just so much horror, and then you get used to it. And they were interesting to watch, you know. They couldn't understand the glass. They could see us, and they could rush at us. But that thin, invisible barrier held them off, stopped them. From time to time, we caught a glimpse of the rocks below. More rats down there, swarming brown velvet in the bright tropical sunlight. And then the tide began to rise.
5: (sighs) If only it had drowned some of them. Ship's rats don't drown. (laughs) No, sir, you can't drown one of them. They're all climbing up the tower.
2: This bunch around us is getting thicker. Uh, Say, what's the time? Quarter of six. You've got first watch, Sean. Right. Wake me at ten. I will. Come along, August. It was getting dark.
4: One side of the room was lit a soft, filtered red. Sunset through the rats. Oh, very pretty. I set the wicks, checked my fuel and then lit the lamp. It caught them, lit them in their gigantic wriggling web of pale hairless bellies, twitching red tails, bright eyes. And then I started the rotary motor. The light drove them mad. As she swung slowly and smoothly about, she blinded them in the fierce stabbing bar of light, moving continually about, ever turning, ever touching, ever moving around and around. And they, twitching and shuddering, eyes flaming when they were struck by the light, the bright light moving. And behind, on the dark side of the room, so close, so close, I dared not turn my back. But you can't help turning your back when you're in a room made of glass. On the dark side of the room, you couldn't see them, but only their eyes. Thousands of points of blank red light, blinking and twinkling
1: like the stars of hell.
4: Louis relieved me at 10, but I didn't get much sleep that night. And when I came up into the gallery early the next morning, there stood Auguste, his back to me. He was bowing to the rats. Waving his arms and making Morning, a
5: speech. My dear, dear, audience, I am going to play once again that magnificent role which made me the toast of the Paris theater. Pray, the evil genius of the medieval underworld. I am he who did guide the dark soul of Marichal into the nether parts. I stood staring <laughs> at him
4: horror-struck, <laughs> but not. he didn't notice me. The man I had gone mad. You, he kept but. turning, telling his stories to all the rats, <laughs> leaving no one out.
5: August! <laughs> August! Another one, a late comer. Take a seat on the aisle, dear patron. Oh, stop it, Zingere, stop it. the bloodstained monster, was yeah, my partner. in iniquity. He went on, bowing together and together scraping to the rats, his
4: big blue eyes rolling and winking, children. his wild he red hair no waving about him.
5: I grabbed him by the arms and, and
4: slapped his face. He looked at me like a child, and then his face screwed up. He looked as though he were about to cry.
5: Go below. Go on. Oh, very well, then. Later, my dear audience, later. Matinee today.
4: Sure, he was crazy. But I guess we all were. A few hours later, he came back up and caught Louie and me teasing the rats. Yes, sounds horrible. It was fun. we would get right up against the glass and make faces at them. It drove them crazy. They would scratch away, trying to get at our eyes. Louie was even cuter about it. He'd pull a piece of bread out of his pocket and press it against the glass. The rats would scramble into a solid ball, biting each other, clustering like grapes. From time to time, a whole knot of them would slip and fall the hundred and ten feet to the surf below.
2: Look! Look at the sharks. They're eating them. Those sharks are our friends. Ah. Here, here, I'll get another bunch together. <laughs> here, my beauties. Ah, That's it. Pile up. Kill each other. Huh? <laughs> there they go.
4: Auguste joined in, too. Very ingenious, Auguste. He learned that if he spread-eagled himself against the glass, they'd bunch and bundle against his
5: figure. Then he'd leap back. Look! My portrait in rats!
4: It went on all day. And then... I was lying in bed. It was about midnight. I was very tired and I was just beginning to fall off to sleep when I became conscious of a new sound. I couldn't figure it at first. I got up, lit the lamp, and went to the window. Even as I looked out, I saw one of the panes begin to sag in. They had eaten the wood away.
2: Louis, come quick! What? What is it? They found a way in.
4: I held the glass with my hand. Now they were all going crazy, and assured of the success of this maneuver, were all nibbling away at the wood. Louis ran below and then returned with a large sheet of tin. We spread it against the window and hammered it into place. Even as we did so, we felt the heavy bodies thudding against the other side as the window gave way.
2: There. Uh, that ought to hold. If it doesn't, we're done for. Rats can't eat tin. No, they can't. But what was that? I don't know. It came from below. The storeroom window. Yeah. There. They're in. They're swarming up the stairs. Drop
4: the trap. Right. Uh, Two of them got in. Let's go after them. We didn't have to go after them. They came at us. I leaped to one side and grabbed a marlin spike, swung, and smashed one in midair. No! I whirled to see Louis with the other. It had ripped his hand open and the blood was pouring out. He held his hand aloft and kicked at the snarling rat. I stepped and swung and got him. Oh, my hands! He got my hand. Uh, That's both of them, Louis. I'll get you something to tie that up.
2: Blood! Look at it, my blood! I'm bleeding! Don't worry about it, Louis. Here!
4: I'll wind this kerchief around it. It'll be okay. Blood. Uh, There! There, that's not bad. Just the flesh. And then, I became conscious of a new sound they were gnawing their way through the wooden trap door. I watched the wood, fascinated. And even as I did, it began to give way. And a bristling whiskery nose showed through.
2: Louis! Uh. We've got to go up! Uh. 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 Uh.
4: Uh. 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 The next level was the living quarters and kitchen.
2: I slammed the trap there. Uh.
4: But it too was wood.
2: Uh blood what are we going to do i don't know they'll be through this one in a minute to the gallery the trap door in the gallery is metal good come on Uh. 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 we made it
4: we lay across the trap door exhausted while below us the rats took over the entire tower I could hear them howling and fighting over our food supply, our water, our leather, and all about us. The others screamed and glared in at us, swayed in a tangled mass, hypnotized by the ever-turning light. By morning, the air in the little room was horrible. Until now, we'd been getting air from the tower below. Now that was sealed off. And so was all our food and water. We lay exhausted, panting, waiting, waiting. And the hours crawled on. I was almost dozing from fatigue when I saw a sight that brought me too fast. Would
5: you like to come in, my beauties? Would you? I hold the powers of life and death and I can let you in, you know. August was standing by the glass and
4: in one hand, he held a big wrench. He was tapping the glass gently, not quite hard enough to break it. I eased myself to my feet and slowly, very slowly, tiptoed toward him.
5: All I have to do is tap just a little harder and...
4: <coughs> I found a coil of wire in the tool kit and I trussed him up, fastened him to a stanchion in the center of the room. Louis was of no help. He lay on his side looking at his bloody hand, weak and sick as a baby. So there I was, a lunatic and a coward for company, and all about, watching our little drama, The Rats. The day dragged by. The supply boat wasn't due for another 12 days. I don't know what they could have done if they had come. And we had only one way of summoning them. That was to shoot off distress rockets. But the rockets were four floors below. And even if they'd been right there in the gallery, I couldn't have opened a window to fire them. I tended the light, but its flame was devouring our oxygen. The following day, we lay thirst-tormented, starving, waiting. And the following night, I again tended the light. But the small supply of spare wicking we kept in the gallery had become exhausted, and quite suddenly, at about midnight, the light went out. There was nothing I could do. Wicks were stored three levels below. Nothing I could do. Nothing. From time to time, I'd strike a match to see the clock. And when I did, it lit up the million red eyes about us. All about. Watching. Waiting. Below, it had grown quiet. They'd cleaned us out, and now they, too, were waiting. All waiting. And then... The rats, quite suddenly, were silent. And then I heard it. And then I saw the sky and the stars. The rats were gone. I went to the glass. Out there on the water, a small freighter, a banana boat, showing a few lights came softly and innocently towards us. Our light was out. They didn't know. I, I wanted to open the windows, to call out to them, to warn them somehow. But I was afraid. What if the rats were hiding from me, tricking me? So I waited She grounded very softly on a reef not 200 yards from the quay. Grounded so gently that the man playing the cornet, was he a passenger, crewman, off-watch, didn't even stop playing. They tried washing her back off. I could have told them to save their fuel. The tide was rising, would have floated her free. And I waited. That's all, that's the story. The sun came up and there wasn't a rat on the whole quay. Every last one of that terrible army had left us, gone back to sea on their new ship. August, insane asylum. He never recovered. And Louis, they took him into Cayenne where he died of blood poisoning from his bite. Yes, that's the whole of it. And if you'll excuse me now, I must go set my traps. (laughs) No, no, mouse traps. No rats in this lighthouse. I should say not. Life in the lights isn't bad. But sometimes, when I see a strange vessel approaching, I get a little nervous. Sure. Somewhere on the seas, there's a little banana boat without a crew. That is, without a human crew.
3: Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robson. Tonight, we have presented Three Skeleton Key by George Tudus, adapted for radio by James Poe. Featured in the cast were Elliot Reed as Jean, Bill Conrad as Louis, and Harry Bartell as Auguste. Special music was arranged and conducted by Del Castillo. Next week.
2: You are standing on the deck of a ship headed on an illegal mission to Central America. Before you, holding a gun in your stomach, is a desperate man who has just given you the choice between being killed or becoming a
3: murderer yourself. Next week we escape with John and Gwen Bagney's exciting tale of a murderous trio of gunrunners in Central America, Maracas. Goodbye then until the same time next week when once again we offer you Escape. Stay tuned now for Life with Luigi, which follows over most of these CBS stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
0: Okay, you got your fill of rat noises for the day? Do you have your chills? Do you have your thrills? Are you looking up at your window and seeing little mice gnawing at your window from above? Hmm. (laughs) What do you say, Keith?
1: Well, it's it's definitely um, the reason that you can tell it became an accepted classic of the series, and and in radio history because uh, it not only was it done again as we mentioned with Vincent Price uh, uh, four months later, it was again redone on Escape in '53. Then the rights reverted back to um, James Poe as as the writer, and uh, he was able to sell it again to um, Bill Robeson in 56 and 58 when he was producing and directing Suspense in its later years. And again, Vincent Price came back for those two late versions. So, so uh, not, it really, we're not going uh, to
0: play those now, but how do those later ones from 50, because I don't know that I've heard them, the later ones from Suspense, how do they compare to the freshness that this uh, elicits when you hear it?
1: Well, they're, they're really good copies that I have of course they're done in the era where it was a complete tape you know production by then mastered on tape and I believe broadcast from tape in 56 and 58 they still hold up really well it's just that in in my opinion you know those those later taped shows do lack that that just indefinable punch of a live production. That, that, yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of
0: what I was getting at, because I've heard some of the later suspense stuff that's on tape, and it's right. okay, but there's Ooh. a version of Sorry, Wrong Number from towards the end of the run, and yes. if I listen to that and then go back and listen to one of the earlier ones with Agnes Moorhead, even though she's still good, you can tell she's <laughs> she's kind of tired of doing this after however many years.
1: Yeah, and also it's just that that thing about tape can be assembled and 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 almost almost sound a little too perfect. Whereas as Paul Frees once said, he said uh, in in the really golden age of radio in, in the forties and up to the late forties, he said because it was always live, he said you were under the gun and and your performance was really you know had to be really good because. Uh, you didn't want to let the team down, and uh, you knew that the whole nation was listening to you live. You know,
0: there's no take two. There's no oh, let's go back and do that one again. We're we're live. Yeah, we're doing exactly. it, and whatever you give is what what they hear. So yeah, you're right.
1: Yeah, but uh, but it is definitely a classic, and uh, and Vincent Price kind of uh, eventually came to believe in his head that James Poe had written the script with him in mind. What what he he was confused about was that um james poe f- was a personal friend of vincent price but the first escape that he wrote specifically for vincent price was one called present tense where it was the uh, a, a murder a murderer going a little crazy and uh, there were all these flashbacks and flash forwards and all of that and that that one then he wrote another one for vincent price which i believe you've you've done on this series called bloodbath which was a classic uh Blood and Thunder uh, is almost like one of those old movie serials, you know, with the cliffhangers.
0: Right. All right. Anything else on Three Skeleton Key before we close out today's show and come back next week with another good one?
1: I think that really uh, covers it uh, because uh, you've, you've done the show twice. And and I, I think uh, uh, it's great to have those comparisons of of hearing one production versus another. But uh, it was it remained as as one of Bill Robson's all time favourites, and uh, even even in 1974, when he did that um, five hour evening with William N. Robson on in Washington for John Hickman, he was talking about it, and they they finished the five hours by playing the Vincent Price version of uh, Three Skeleton Key in 1950.
0: Well, very good, thank you, Keith Scott, for your enlightening information. As always, oh, a, a, a fountain of information of things that I know <laughs> don't know quite as much about these some of these things as you do. So it's great to have someone here to explain it all to a modern audience <laughs> who may have never heard any of this stuff before. And that's kind of what we do because this show, this podcast is reaching all kinds of people that apparently are much younger and have not heard a lot of vintage radio and are depending on what we play to educate them. So that's great.
1: Well, it's, it's great that there is a younger audience appearing for these shows at one stage, I was worried that, that, uh, the world had lost the ability to listen.
0: Well, much of the world has lost the ability to listen, yeah. but yeah. Uh, there's always, I guess uh, some people call it the remnant, there's always a remnant of people that will find, yeah. uh, and the way I look at it is something that's good, something that's that's well done, well produced, well acted, et cetera, et cetera, will always find an audience. Now, it may not be oh, yeah. the same size yeah. audience it found when it was first dealt with years and years before, but it will always find an audience. There will be people, and those people will appreciate what it was. And the more people yes. that we kind of slowly drag into the world of old-time radio here, the more people will, will hear it. So it'll go on. Well, these, these
1: are the people with taste.
0: <laughs> the people with taste. <laughs> yes, it's stark tuna or whatever. Uh, yeah. Anyway, all right. This is the good old days of radio show. Thank you, Keith Scott. We will see you next Thursday for another uh, episode of Escape, carefully chosen by you to keep us in escape or suspense or whatever. Uh, wrong show. All right. Uh, till next time, this is John Teftiller saying goodbye.